welcome to Deep North. We're here today with staff writer Frank Walter Sands on his piece, What a Riot, Iceland's Controversial NATO Membership Vote. What a Riot, Iceland's Controversial NATO Membership Vote. Wednesday, March 30, 1949 was a cold spring day with heavy, dark clouds out to sea. Despite the chill, by noon there were already hundreds of Icelanders in Reykjavik's Oysterwutler Square. Before long, there would be thousands more. For many bystanders, there was a palpable sense of anticipation and anxiety. Scuffles were breaking out between protesters and supporters sporadically, but by and large a semblance of peace was maintained. Some shouted slogans and tried to get chants going. A few held signs. One of them, held by a young girl, read, Vier Motmailem Atlir, We All Protest, the well-known protest slogan of Iceland's 19th century independence movement. The Icelandic parliament had been in session all morning and would be voting on whether to join the fledgling North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The tension among Reykjavik's 60,000 citizens had never been higher. Public opinion was almost evenly split. Rumors of treason, revolution, and coup d'etat abounded. In the previous decade, Iceland had gone from being a Danish colony to being invaded and occupied, first by the British, then somewhat more cooperatively by the Americans. The Cold War was intensifying and demanding everyone's attention, forcing individuals and governments alike to take sides. Many Icelanders were deeply convinced that socialism was the only effective solution to Iceland's lack of equality, low wages, and poor living conditions. Nobel Prize-winning author Haldor Kilian Laxness was one of the country's most prominent socialists, and his concern over Iceland's, quote, selling out, unquote, is reflected in his seminal 1948 work, The Atom Station. Conservatives, on the other hand, saw the American military presence in Iceland as a guarantee of security and viewed the Soviet Union's pernicious influence, not least on Iceland's Socialist Party, as an enormous threat to the young republic's future well-being. Independence versus safety. Even though it had never had a military, Iceland's strategic position in close proximity to vital North Atlantic Ocean routes made the small island nation an indispensable ally and a vital link in NATO's intended defense chain. Many Icelanders justifiably feared that large contingents of foreign soldiers based in Iceland would not only jeopardize Iceland's not even five years of independence, but also make it a target of deadly atomic weapons. Supporters and members of the Icelandic Socialist Party who otherwise were disparagingly referred to as communists, as well as some members of the more rural progressive party and the labor party, made up the core of dissenters. Although few in number, nationalists were opposed to joining NATO as well, but more because of concern that the American presence would dilute Iceland's culture and gene pool. In those heady, politically charged pre-internet days, People of all conviction had reliable, if biased, access to the news. Apart from the national radio, 
Reykjavik published five politically aligned daily newspapers that fought vicious campaigns against one another, representing the respective political parties. Not unlike today's coverage of international political crises, Icelanders of the post-war era could focus on their preferred journalists and essentially block out points of view and facts with which they disagreed, a perfect recipe for civil discord. Those who supported joining NATO came primarily from the Conservative Independence Party, which had been dominating Icelandic politics for decades and continues to do so to this day. During Parliament's debate over NATO membership, Foreign Minister Bjarni Benediksson pointed to recent Soviet aggression against Czechoslovakia and West Germany, telling opponents of NATO they were dreaming if they thought Iceland would have its neutrality respected leading up to another world war. Prime Minister Stefan Johan Stefansson bluntly stated that Iceland had effectively abandoned its neutrality in 1941 by inviting the United States to station troops in the country, and there was simply no going back now. The prevailing argument was that it would be better to make a permanent defense treaty based on shared values of unity, democracy, and freedom, than risk getting invaded and occupied later, quite possibly by forces less sympathetic than the Americans. Votes and Violence Every available police officer had been ordered to stand guard and protect the Parliament building, clad in black uniforms, helmets and gas masks, and armed with batons, They formed a double line, hands clasped confidently behind their backs. Curious youths, including scores of children, stood idly by to see what might happen. Flyers had been distributed and radio announcements exhorted government supporters, quote, Citizens of Reykjavik, communists have called for an illegal rally downtown. We ask peace-loving citizens to come to Oystervutler Square between 12 p.m. and 1 p.m. to demonstrate that they want Parliament to be able to conduct proceedings free of intimidation, While a crowd of several thousand NATO protesters and supporters grew ever louder and angrier in Reykjavik's Oystervutler Square, within the Icelandic Parliament building, some 80 young men muttered together nervously and grimly awaited orders. Sometimes referred to as the white armbands, they had secretly assembled earlier in the year and trained to assist police in defending Althingi in the event of attempts to prevent passage of the NATO treaty. Wielding heavy wooden batons and wearing black painted British army helmets and white armbands on their overcoats identifying them as deputized guardians, the eager young volunteers felt themselves ready for any kind of confrontation. Their leader, 30-year-old Oliver Pieterson, an Independence Party youth leader who had previously been convicted of spying for the Nazis in wartime Norway, ordered them to stand ready. Outside, surrounding the building, were a further 1,000 unarmed citizens who had answered the call to defend Parliament. Responding to other quite different radio announcements and newspaper advertisements, 
thousands of Socialist Party supporters convened at an outdoor rally at 1 p.m., just two minutes' walk from Oysterwuttler Square, where they voted to send representatives to Althinki to deliver a message demanding an immediate halt to the NATO vote and a general referendum on NATO membership. Stefan Ugmundsson, one of the Socialist Party leaders, delivered the demand personally, but was rebuffed on the grounds that the parliamentary vote took precedence. At 1.30 p.m., the Socialist rally concluded with a rousing song, upon which the throng of thousands marched in tight formation to Oysterwuttler Square, shouting, Referendum! and Treason! and The government is selling us out! It's raining eggs and tear gas. Tension was snowballing outside among the multitude as Althingi voted 37 to 13 to join NATO. While the results of the vote remained undisclosed, the increasing cacophony of some 10,000 people shouting and fighting just outside the Althingi's walls was impossible to ignore. Calling from within the building, parliamentarian Einar Olgerson informed fellow socialist Stefan Ugmundsson of the long-feared results of the NATO vote and that none of his fellow socialist MPs were allowed to leave the building, saying they were practically prisoners. Stefan wasted no time in getting to crowded Oysterwuttler Square to address the throng of dissenters with a megaphone mounted on a truck, shouting, "'They've sold us out!' They've committed treason, and now they are holding your MPs hostage. Chaos erupted. Thousands of eggs and potatoes from a conveniently parked delivery van rained down on all thingy, followed by volleys of rocks and mud, driving many government supporters away and breaking every single pane of glass on the front of the building. One stone and shards of broken glass flew past the head of the Speaker of Parliament, narrowly missing him, but parliamentary proceedings continued nevertheless. As the shouting grew louder and stones continued to fall, the Chief of Police ordered his men and the baton-wielding deputies to prepare to deploy tear gas. A megaphone was placed at the entrance of the Althinki, and a brief announcement was made demanding protesters immediately vacate Oysterwuttler Square. Unfortunately, the device was defective, and the message went unheard. Within seconds, the first of a dozen tear gas grenades were shot into the shocked public. Pandemonium ensued. As the gas quickly dispersed, screams of pain and shrieks of terror were heard all over the square. Men, women, and children of all political convictions ran off in panic. Police officers and the white armbands, protected by gas masks, whacked indiscriminately at everyone in their path with their heavy wooden clubs. The tear gas leaked into the surrounding buildings and hundreds of innocent bystanders were left coughing and gasping for air, temporarily blinded by the gas. Some sought to avoid the gas by climbing the revered statue of Iceland's founding father, Jón Sigurdsson while most fanned out onto side streets. Men and women were seen at nearby Churton Pond rinsing the tear gas from their eyes. 
Some of the more stalwart protesters covered their mouths with handkerchiefs and attempted to fight back. One deputy had his baton taken away by a protester, who then beat him with it repeatedly. Another rioter managed to pick up a malfunctioning tear gas grenade and throw it back into a small group of police, whereupon it exploded, lightly injuring them. When the initial clouds of tear gas thinned, avid protesters returned in force, throwing more stones and anything else they could get their hands on. Others tore apart a picket fence and used the sticks to slug it out with the considerably less self-assured police. A second wave of tear gas was quickly deployed to keep the rabble of protesters at bay, but fighting continued unabated until late into the evening. By midnight, the exhausted police had finally regained control. Miraculously, despite hundreds of injuries and dozens of critically wounded police, deputies and protesters, no one had been killed. One teenager was, however, nearly blinded by tear gas, and three policemen were seriously injured. Twelve other police officers and scores of protesters were hospitalized for minor wounds. Spinning Stories In the aftermath of Iceland's most violent riots, Reykjavik's five daily newspapers told their respective versions of the previous day's events, alternately defending or condemning the heavy-handed police for deploying tear gas without warning and savagely beating unarmed protesters. The headline of left-wing journal Thjodvillian, The Will of the People, declared, quote, Treason committed under cover of violent, savage attacks on peaceful citizens, unquote. In the conservative newspapers, the protesters were described as, quote, violent communist mob beaten back from their cowardly attack on the Althingi, unquote. Initially, five people were arrested, including one woman. Given the turmoil of the riot, police were frustrated in their attempt to identify the vast majority of perpetrators. Eventually, 24 suspected protesters were prosecuted, including Stefan Ökmansson, who was considered to have instigated the attacks on the parliament building. Sentences ranged from fines to 12 months prison time, but eventually cooler heads prevailed and the convictions were suspended and finally completely annulled by 1957. To this day, debate continues among historians as to whether the anti-NATO riot was in fact a coup attempt, but most discount this conspiracy theory. Not all was well and done, however. Recent disclosures published in Iceland's Morgenbladet newspaper have revealed that Stefan Ökmansson and Minister of Parliament Einar Olgersson's houses had been secretly bugged on orders from the Minister of Justice in 1949 and afterwards. This was hardly a unique event, as nearly all socialist leaders and others that voted against NATO membership had been illegally bugged. No explanations or apologies were ever issued by the Icelandic government for these actions, but parallels to the paranoia of the United States Red Scare are obvious. Within a week of the riot, Iceland's foreign minister, Bjarni Benediksson, formally signed the North Atlantic Treaty in Washington, D.C., and with that, Iceland became a founding member of NATO. The permanent American military presence that resulted remained controversial, 
but when a left-leaning Icelandic government declared in 1974 that the country would finally get rid of the American base, more than 50,000 Icelanders signed a petition, and the plans were abandoned. In the following decades, countless anti-NATO protests would take place under banners demanding, quote, Iceland out of NATO and away with the army, unquote. But thankfully, none came close to the drama and the violence of that fateful spring day in 1949. Well, thank you for that, Frank. Thank you, Eric. So I think that one of the great things about this piece is that it, you know, I mean, like so much in history, it kind of shows us how much our perceptions of things change. And, you know, I mean, for so many visitors and residents alike, the base in Keplavik is just this feature. And it feels like in a lot of ways it's just always been there. Uh, and we sometimes forget how contentious it really was initially. You know, Iceland was one of the founding members of NATO um, and it's easy to forget, you know, I mean, especially in this moment uh, with, you know, these kind of renewed questions over NATO membership with Sweden and Finland uh, now moving to join uh, in the wake of the Ukrainian conflict, um, you know, that in the beginning, like this was actually just really quite deeply unpopular. Um, and, you know, so I think it's just good to kind of remember that for some of the context. Um and, you know, I mean, something that's also just kind of interesting to me is, you know, also maybe how the political valence of NATO membership didn't always necessarily break down along the lines we might think it would. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, one of the big supporters was, of course, the Independence Party here. Um, and, you know, so to some extent, the uh, opposition uh and the Socialist Party is, you know, to be expected. Um, but, you know, then there is also this other thing that you kind of mentioned in the piece where, um, you know, like there is also this uh, fear, maybe a foreign influence, um, you know, that like the presence of the American uh, Air Force Base, you know, could have some sort of uh, degenerating effect uh, on the on the language, on the demographics. Um, and, you know, I mean, for a very long time in Icelandic politics, I mean, just like having an environmental policy and an economic policy, having a stance towards the base was like really kind of one of the main axes in Icelandic politics, actually. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just always good to kind of revisit these things. And uh, it, it's um, it's fun to talk about it. One of the things that I remember in my first decade of living here from the late 80s to the early 90s was the kind of pathetic but nevertheless um, very popular protests that would happen. Sometimes they would walk all the way from Reykjavik to Keplavik and try to stop traffic. They would have banners. They would have um, Lutherusvet or like a, a horn section where they'd be playing um, old socialist songs and things like that. Hmm. Uh, for me, at the time, as a visiting foreigner, it seemed very odd and kind of quaint. But it wasn't until I began to get better information on the these um, polemics that I, I began to understand a little better 
how contentious they were and how how much violence had actually occurred uh, as a result of this um, contention. But I think essentially it's always been a problem for a country like Iceland from its very beginning in the ninth century or even earlier that it's alone in the middle of the North Atlantic and being alone means you're vulnerable. And I think there were a lot of people at the time who were very much aware of uh, the danger of Iceland's isolation and were seeking to make as many advantageous treaties and so forth as possible. There was no denying at the time that the economic growth that resulted as a result of the occupation of Iceland starting in 1940 was tremendous and uh, something that most people agreed was a positive influence. But at the same time, there were something like 500 Icelandic brides to American servicemen at the time, and this was seen uh, as a big sign of regret. Um, And many saw it as the beginning of the end, the undoing of Icelandic society. Mm -hmm. So when the 1949 treaty came along, it looked like this would be the end of the end. From a cultural perspective, I think people were looking to the coming decades with a lot of trepidation. They saw the opportunities, the economic opportunities that uh, the new globalizing world represented, but at the same time, they were very worried about losing the things that made them essentially Icelandic. Sure. And, you know, there's something just very... uh quintessentially Icelandic about this situation where, you know, uh, of course, being an island uh, and the history of pre-modern Iceland as being, you know, very much a agrarian society, you know, uh, of course, Iceland is in some sense uh, very peripheral and, you know, a very literal way. Um, and yet there's also this strange way in which this very peripheral situation often thrusts Iceland into the center of world events sometimes. I mean, Iceland's uh, central role in the Second World War as a shipping lane, uh, of course, you know, the strategic importance during the Cold War, and then, of course, you know, the talks uh, between Reagan and Gorbachev. Um, yeah, like, like there's just something very Icelandic somehow to me about that that situation. It, it's fun to uh, recall that uh, another part of this um, disparity and contention uh, in which Iceland really stood out was when Iceland offered uh, the former chess master Bobby Fischer, who was at the time being held in Japan without a passport. And Iceland generously offered him a passport and a living here in Iceland. And Bobby Fischer... um, gratefully accepted the offer and moved to Iceland. At the time, there was a lot of international indignation because Bobby Fischer was looked at as possibly insane, possibly a traitor, uh, possibly um, a blockade uh, breaker when he took part in a chess match um, in Serbia at the time of uh, Serbia being blackballed by the international community. So although his life 
after uh, incarceration and then freedom here in Iceland was short, it nevertheless had a, a tremendous impact because I think it declared to a lot of the world Iceland would go its own way and it would offer asylum to those it chose to as- offer asylum to and it would try to be a partner in international global cooperation, but at the same time, it wanted to have its own path. Yeah. One of the, you know, just one, one of the first moments in the piece uh, that I thought was uh, really interesting um, is this protest slogan, Vier uh, and, you know, so for listeners that might not uh, know the Finer points. Uh, this is actually like a rather archaic uh, phrasing, uh, and this comes from you said Jon Sigurdsson, uh, one of the leaders of the uh, Icelandic independence movement. Um, but you know, I mean, I think it's really interesting that uh, you know there isn't maybe this distinction between you know history and the present moment uh, that it kind of makes sense in a way for political radicals in Iceland to kind of draw on history in this way, that history isn't uh, kind of necessarily, uh, yeah, a source of only conservative values. Uh, You know, I mean, specifically, this is just a very kind of old-timey way of saying something, right? Uh, And it's not maybe necessarily what we might expect from socialist demonstrators. Um, And, you know, I mean, one of the great figures, of course, uh, that really kind of encapsulates this spirit and somebody who kind of you know, uh, drew on Icelandic history uh, with a progressive perspective uh, was, of course, Loxness, a uh, famous Nobel laureate. Um, and you mentioned the Adam Station uh, and that this is in some sense also like a kind of commentary on this moment. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe for those of us who haven't read it, uh, you could just sketch it out. The um, <clears throat> If anybody's interested in uh, delving into Icelandic literature, the Adam Station is a good place to start. It's actually um, the left-leaning um, Loxness's version of this same story that we've just told. Uh, his version is dark, of course, and somewhat, um, somewhat too negative because it predicts that there will eventually be a nuclear war which will completely destroy Iceland. That's not the focus of the book, but it is trying to balance the nascent independence uh, that Iceland was um, experiencing in the aftermath of World War II uh, with the dangers of an international conflict that Iceland would be drawn into, just simply because it had a NATO base and also would be um, a part of NATO, would necessarily mean that Iceland could become a victim um, of some kind of terrible attack. And Loxness was very much aware of this and wanted to make sure that his readers understood the actual danger that NATO membership for Iceland represented. So just on a really practical level, I am always kind of interested in what did your kind of research process for this piece look like? I mean, uh, obviously, I imagine um, a lot of old newspapers. um, But yeah, you know, I mean, like maybe you can just kind of walk me through uh, what that looked like. The the best part of this job 
for me is the research because it's there that I learn all of the most interesting parts, not just the story in general, but the little nuggets that make the story, um, let's say, more memorable. For example, if anybody's interested, it's a wonderful source online to go to timurit.is. Um, and there one can access, I think, every last printed um, periodical or a newspaper that had ever been uh, printed in Iceland. Mm. And it's also searchable. The trick for uh, foreign-born people like yourself and me is to be able to decipher the sometimes archaic language. <laughs> um, and that Viermot Mailer Atler is a good example of that. Um, what is happening in a lot of these newspapers is uh, they're, they're trying to upbraid one another um, in their political perspectives. For example, the conservative papers were very eager to paint any protesters of NATO as being communists and therefore traitors, uh, whereas the left-leaning peoples uh, were somewhat predictably looking at the more conservative and um, pro-NATO parties as being ones that were fascist or even Nazis. Um, it's interesting to think that even 75 years later, we can hear the same kind of exchange going on in um, political theater all over the world. Well, I mean, certainly um, the moment was much closer than uh, that there were still uh, yeah, you know, actual fascists uh, in power. Um, you know, I mean, also just uh, for anyone that doesn't have the magazine, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think also just the images that kind of accompany the piece are also just really quite uh, striking because, you know, I mean, maybe visitors to Reykjavik or residents, you know, I mean, will kind of recognize Oystebutler Square as, you know, I mean, just this little peaceful place where in the summer it's just kind of surrounded with cafes. Um, you know, I mean, notably though, this is also the site of the famous uh, pots and pans revolution uh, after the yeah, financial right. crash. Um, but, you know, I mean, it is really striking to just kind of see this place that we, you know, just think of as this serene little square just kind of transformed into, you know, I mean, what does look kind of like a war zone. Uh, there's smoke, gas canisters going yeah. off. Um, you know, kind of policemen facing off with crowds, uh, not really images that we expect to see from Reykjavik. It, I, I totally agree with you. I think that the most striking thing, especially if one just Googles the, um, the date and the, the subject matter, you can see lots of amateur photographs, um, some of which are, are really striking. But um, the most striking, I think, is seeing how people are tearing apart a picket fence so that they can beat one another with the sticks. And the fact that nobody died in this is really a miracle. Out of the tens of thousands of people there and how much political vitriol was was going on, and the stakes were that high. People really thought this could be the end of the nation or it could be the beginning of a, of a wonderful new partnership. But either way there was no way these people were going to reconcile themselves to uh, the other side winning. And I think justifiably the left-wingers 
uh, felt that they were being railroaded, that, that the whole process was not really being put to anything fair. Although the majority of Icelanders have, through time, been more likely to vote for the presence of a NATO base in Iceland, particularly because of the economic impact it's had. Um, anybody who has met Icelanders who live close to the NATO base or have grown up there, their English tends to be very good. They tend to have uh, a lot of musical um, inculcation, which uh, other Icelanders were unaware of. And this is due to the, the presence of the TV and radio stations and um, the post exchanges that were available uh, from the yeah, it's also uh, maybe just briefly worth mentioning. Uh, you know, I mean, Keplavik is often kind of seen as the birthplace of Icelandic rock and roll. That's uh, right. It was, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, like where some of the first radio broadcasts to Iceland uh, were received. Um, so, you know, like there is very much a kind of rich history of Keplavik as being the reception point for a lot of international culture. Yeah, and uh, that that is interesting also to to realize that um, part of this contract, uh, which I did not write about, um, which established the NATO base, um, it was negotiated in such a way that um, the NATO base was not allowed to be anywhere near Reykjavik. And at first glance, this might seem odd, but it's even odder when you consider that it would require, therefore, building an entirely new uh, airbase with a, a very expensive landing strip and putting it out far, far from Reykjavik. Back in those days, it was you know a couple of hours' ride. Uh, the logic being that the Icelandic authorities wanted to prevent um, fraternization between America's soldiers and the locals. They had seen that during the war years... Um, many uh, Icelandic females ended up leaving the country with American servicemen and British servicemen, and they wanted to avoid that. And quite scandalously, there was even a provision, which I think until 1969 was valid, which said that no uh, servicemen from the United States of color were allowed to serve in Iceland. Wow. It certainly reminds us how close still uh this moment was and how it, i mean you know there are people with a living memory of this still yeah um you know i mean also uh just from the more research perspective here um you know inevitably in writing a piece like this uh not everything makes it in uh i was just kind of curious as to whether um you know you kind of came across anything interesting or unexpected uh, that maybe didn't make the cut yeah well one of the one of the points there is that um a former icelandic nazi became the chief of police and was in control of uh, most of the authority um in the uh capital area for decades and uh, a number of his comrades were also um like-minded nazis but uh, shortly after the occupation of Iceland by Britain in 1940, they basically went underground. Shortly thereafter, in the late war period, 1944, they were reformed as part of the Independence Party. So they became the right wing of the Independence Party. 
That is not to say that they were Nazis in the same sense of Adolf Hitler or, or Goebbels or anybody like that. These were Icelandic Nazis, so they did not have um, a big threat of uh, extermination of, of minorities because at that time there weren't really minorities in Iceland. So it was much more about uh, strict discipline and, um, and having a Nazi-aligned uh, philosophy for Iceland. Uh, it was rather feeble, and it only had 500 to 1,000 members at its height. But many of these people ended up playing important roles in Icelandic society, not least the chief of police. Yes, unfortunately. Well, um, yeah, and I mean, I guess maybe uh, to just kind of leave us off with um, what really, I don't know, kind of surprised you in some sense. Uh, first of all, in all of the time that I have spent here in this wonderful country and all of the protests I've seen, I never have seen anything at that level. Uh, if, if one looks at the pictures, as I said, or the, the few snatches of video, uh, it's, it does not look or feel like Iceland when you see people that filled with hate and um, uh, that desperate to... Um, try to do anything they can to stop their, their opponents. It's, it's not something that most people would associate with Iceland today. Most people, I think, would agree that this is a peaceful place, that there's a lot of social solidarity, and that there's, despite the differences, um, a very high level of egalitarianism. But at that time, it was a much more divisive um, question, which really could have changed Iceland's history could have been it could have been part of the Eastern Bloc. It could have been destroyed in some kind of Cold War struggle. It might never have developed economically. So the fact that the country found its way through and made it to what I think is most people would agree a, a very good place in today's society is kind of a miracle. Yeah, certainly. Well, thank you for that, Frank. Thank you, Eric. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English-language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.